I'm Man in China, episode 5, The One Child Policy. My first real interaction with a local woman came in the form of meeting my Chinese teacher. However, from the very moment she arrived, she addressed my marital status and what I sought to earn and where I was looking to work, before drowning me in compliments. I was perpetually on edge, worrying that she was about to proposition me for marriage. That was our one and only class together. Her replacement took a similar route and I was put off a female teacher from there on out. I knocked the classes on the head soon after, despite help from three other women I came to meet. In a large modern city like Suzhou, one can get around without the need to learn Chinese. Over the course of my stay in China, it became apparent that most Chinese people under 30 living in the city that I interacted with had received English lessons to some degree. So asking for directions was somewhat straightforward. Those previous encounters with women had saddened me. Was it really true? Were these women so desperate to flee China that they would marry anyone who could offer them solace abroad? Despite Facebook's ban, social media was booming in China. VPNs, leaks and minimal censorship on some topics allowed the Chinese to think for themselves. In particular, the young and educated were growing restless and wanted to go out and see the world for what it was, not the false image China had tried to create. BBC World Service and Al Jazeera were both broadcast there and brought the world's events to Chinese living rooms. Youngsters had the opportunity to see the world outside of their country and could realise that dream. I did, however, often see stories about China on BBC that were never revealed to us by the Chinese media within China. In marrying an expat like me, a Chinese woman can begin to dream of a life abroad and the opportunity for free will, a large family and the potential to work. Chinese women from poor backgrounds have no chance of leaving due to financial constraints, and those from more prosperous upbringings face their own dilemmas. It was shaking the shackles of a Chinese family life that was the number one task. The tyrannical rule of the grandfather, or the eldest male in a Chinese household, can make the atmosphere too much for anyone to bear. As is Chinese custom, owing to the respect and esteem held for ancestry, it is the role of the oldest male to control the household and raise the children to his way of thinking. Commonly, it is a norm for three generations to live together, regardless of the size of the dwelling. The one-child policy ran from 1979 and was not scrapped until 2015. The child's parents would go off to make a living whilst the grandparents remained at home to oversee the tutorage and care of the infant. A wiser and more traditional mentality is therefore no doubt found in such homes. It's no surprise to learn that largely due to the one-child policy, there are now not enough young people in China to, in turn, look after the ageing population. It's near impossible to leave China as it is without the added guilt of leaving your parents alone. Being an only child could be bad enough, painfully shy, an inability to interact and share with others, combined with the parental pressure to continue the family and earn the highest possible income and succeed. This can lead to anxiety and low self-esteem. In China, this is an even bigger issue. Never had I seen so much pressure on so many too young to cope. I must mention here the stark contrast with Korean families. I taught several privately, and on entering their homes, I was greeted by screams of joy and giggling as siblings played with each other. The parents too were of a more pleasant and agreeable nature, always supplying me with food on arrival. 
I look forward to these moments. For the rich Chinese students I taught, they had schedules filled with additional classes in the evening, where children back home in the UK were out playing with their friends or siblings, sharing toys and interacting with other young children. Without siblings, how does one learn to share? Without friends to play with after school, how does a child enjoy life? I had 14-year-olds studying further English on a Monday, piano on a Tuesday, advanced mathematics on a Wednesday, and so on. They came from the wealthier of the families I met, but it was not uncommon for children to stay at home with continued study in the evenings and weekends. I simply did not see children playing together, and they did not have an affectionate relationship with anyone. I did not see affection between people full stop. There were no parents laughing and playing with their children. They were not tossing them in the air or swinging them round. I did not see couples exchanging loving looks, embracing or kissing. In short, I did not see love, at least by a Western ideology. And what about the children themselves? They are none the wiser, and as sponges, they trudge along, taking in all they can, unaware of the pressure. When they become teenagers, they are bogged down by puberty, extra classes, increasing pressure to attend the best university China has to offer. There is no second price. No wonder the suicide rate was so drastically high. It still is. These awkward teens that suffer enough as it is have next to no physical contact with the opposite sex before they are thrown into a university with other confused, bewildered young men and women. Whereas I went to parties in my teens, had my first kiss, and lost my virginity before university, the Chinese are not encouraged to court, and for those with wealthier parents. Attending weekend schools, learning at least one instrument, and generally studying until midnight does nothing but further hinder them socially. Subsequently, they have not the opportunity to date others, leaving them inexperienced and helpless when they are finally thrust into such situations as young adults. What is worse is that once they are finally given a chance to interact with the opposite sex, their parents have likely matched them with a prospective spouse already. Arranged marriages, like those associated with India. A commonplace in China as well, and you have barely begun university before your parents choose a partner whose parents share the same ideas and beliefs that you do. Most importantly, of course, money talks, and in China, parents will liaise with other parents to find a match that makes financial sense for their children. Appearance is mostly irrelevant; however, political views must be aligned. For the families of the Chinese girlfriends and my foreign friends, there was a genuine fear that their daughter would be taken from them, never to return. A battle existed between expats and the family over the woman. After a stint teaching teenagers on weekends, I worked on a campus where I discovered many of my university students already had their futures mapped out for them at nineteen: who they would marry, where they would live, and what they would do. This is how it was, and who am I to judge otherwise? Some years later, I tackled a Chinese acquaintance I met in Chile on some of these topics. I vividly remember bringing up the arranged marriages, teenage sobriety, and lack of social life. She explained that my 19-year-old drunken self probably made some appalling decisions regarding women, and was in no state, sober or otherwise, to choose a wife. As such, my parents would have been better off making that decision. Did I not choose badly? Was I not a drunk and a womanizer at that age, and was it not better that a mature couple such as my parents make the decision for me? For certain, I would not recommend a nineteen-year-old me for marriage to anyone I didn't greatly dislike. There was little I could say to her argument, but I do feel one is entitled to make their own choices on certain topics. 
And while I understand the decision to keep them away from the dangers of alcohol, I was not about to agree that my parents should arrange for my marriage with a stranger. Whatever their justification, I found incredibly depressing that this decision should be conducted by the head rather than the heart, a choice made by the family and not by he or she entering into marriage. It was soulless and money orientated. Despite this, I did see several functioning relationships whilst working at the university, and it appeared to be a refuge for many to embrace and hold hands, perpetuating a guise that cannot occur in the world outside. Most distressing yet was hearing firsthand how sheltered the lives of my uni students had been. When I taught at university, I was hired to impart my non-existent knowledge on the subject of business English to some outstanding young men and women. I have been, and I will continue to be largely critical of what I experienced in China, but I cannot fault the joy and enthusiasm of my students at the university. However, these students did not ask me about economic trends and venture capitals. They asked me questions that really brought home the extent to which their lives were sheltered. What is it like to go out and dance? What is it like to be drunk? What is love? It almost broke my heart to hear this. Though I was older, 26 at the time, and had some live cognizance, their faces not only conveyed wonder and curiosity, but also suggested that they didn't think they would ever see such things for themselves. Were they even aware of the sex industry nearby in downtown Suzhou? Would they too one day seek sex away from the family home? And would they also discover that everyday Chinese girls were converted to prostitution through an addiction to crystal meth? Music